Welcome to the Modern Intimacy Podcast, a show about mental health, sex, relationships, education, how-tos, and those private things we need to talk about more publicly with no restrictions. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri. As a licensed psychologist, certified sex therapist, and certified sex addiction therapist, I know that mental health is directly tied to the quality of our relationships and our sex lives. I am passionate in my desire to smash stigmas about both and shine a light on relationship and societal issues that may be negatively affecting us. During this podcast, I will also give you practical answers and insights to questions you're asking about or have been hoping to solve. We should all have fulfilled, happy lives, erasing shame and stigmas and building healthy connections. Let's do that by getting curious together. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to this episode of the Modern Intimacy Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri, and today I have with me Janelle Marina Mendez, who has written an incredibly important and provocative article on Medium, which I'll get to in a second. This might seem like content that feels a little asynchronous for the rest of what the Modern Intimacy Podcast is about. And it's a really important topic, but I wanted to take a second and address what we're going to be talking about, which is the radicalization of young men and how that applies to a lot of the other things that we've been talking about on the podcast, such as sexual autonomy, empowerment, pleasure, and all the good things that we highlight as sex therapists in this work. There are connections, and I'm so excited for Janelle to be here with me today in having this very, very important conversation, because as you'll see, the radicalization pipeline is something that affects us all and in different ways, but it has direct consequences to our sexual rights as human beings and to our experience of happiness and contentment as human beings. So Janelle, thank you so much for being here with me today. I was so excited when I came across your content and really, really looking forward to this conversation. Can you tell folks a little bit about who you are and how you got started in this work? Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and having this conversation with your audience because I feel like this is the perfect medium to be having this conversation. Um, For those of you who don't know me, I am Janelle Marina Mendez, and I myself have gone through sexual violence and evolved into a human rights leader. And I founded the military sexual trauma movement, which I was able to uh, author, lobby and act the first intersectional legislation in United States history. Uh, Currently, I recently founded a new company, which is uh, called Boricua Gringa, Human Rights Strategic Advisory. And right now, my work is focusing on educating the public and developing future leaders in victim advocacy to best understand how our politics, economics, and social issues that we're having are colliding and how it's creating human rights abuses and how we can move in a healthier direction where we can affirm human rights for everyone and lower victimization. Right. So let's first start by addressing the article that you wrote on Medium. It is such a powerful article called The Lost Generation of Boys and Men, How the Radicalization Marketing Funnel Targets Male Insecurity and Leads to Violence. So can you tell listeners a little bit about what prompted you to write this article and what you're seeing as a human rights expert in the world? 
So it was twofold. It was partly personal experience being a human rights leader. Uh, So when I started the movement, I didn't know that I was um, running a feminist organization at that point. I wasn't secure with myself to um, identify in that capacity. So for me, it was just about pursuing justice. And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't getting justice only for myself, but for everyone. And I knew that there needed to be legislation that was done. And in the process of doing human rights and founding a human rights organization, I ended up listening to a very diverse group of veterans who all went through military sexual violence. And as I started to hear their stories, I started identifying trends. And those trends had to do with white supremacy and the way um, administrative violence operates. And when I started to make those connections, I began to do research and I started to look at the work of different sociologists and different social media researchers that were looking at behaviors because in the course of trying to pass laws, I noticed that a certain subset of veterans that were extremely right-wing, that they were part of the alternative right, like not mainstream conservatism. And I started to notice that they were attacking me and attacking my credibility and also essentially saying that like sexual violence isn't happening and that the people who are coming forward are lying about it. So I noticed that there was like this really huge effort to discredit me and my reputation. And it wasn't one time, it was consistently every single time I had a success in politics and with legislation. So when I started to identify the personal pattern, and then I started to see how it started going from discrediting me to calling for violence against me to then planning actual assassination attempts against me. I was like, for a matter of my safety, I need to understand what's happening um, more so from the scholastic aspect, because I understand what's happening in politics and I understand the power play that's happening, but I need to understand the research of the psychology behind who these men are and why these male veterans and these male service members have, why do they have a state? What is their, what is their motive? And why is it that they're doing this? Because what has happened in in the the violations, the sexual violence, the sex trafficking and everything that I experienced in the military, that happened and there's substantial documentation for it. So to tell me that I didn't go through that and then to sit there and try to discredit me so other people wouldn't come forward, that's when I started to make the connections of this has to do with what's called the radicalization pipeline. The way that I made the connection from male insecurity, which is stage one radicalization, all the way to domestic terrorism and extremism was because the leader of the white supremacist organization within the Marine Corps, he was the one organizing the attacks, but he also would consistently message me in DMs and ask me out and then try to play devil's advocate. And when I wouldn't respond, he would make public calls for violence against me. And like, I saw this repeated behavior and I was like, why is there calls for violence when I'm just ignoring or rejecting this guy's advancements, especially when I'm, you know, more left wing, he's right wing. That's not a normal match that I would make. Right. So for me, it just seemed logical to not engage with him where for him, it was like, every time I didn't engage he would go and dox me. He would call for violence against me. He worked on planning an assassination attempt. 
you know, he went to create a massive discrediting campaign against my organization. So I was like, he's taking this so far off of rejection. Mm-hmm. And that was when I started to do a lot of research from different aspects of science, scientific aspects, you know, in the medical field to understand the mentality of how is this happening where rejection leads to extremism and violence. And that was how I developed the radicalization pipeline. And I primarily did it for my own personal safety. Mm. And it was taking my experiences and aligning them with actual research to affirm how the process happens. And then that is how I officially created the radicalization pipeline. And I'm so glad that you did. I mean, I've seen lots of people, many scholars, many academics, many folks who study the the social experience that we're having in recent years. And uh, many people are talking about this, but I've really not seen anyone highlight it in such a crystallized way as I saw in your work. So I really would love to jump into the different stages of radicalization that you've identified. Um, But before we do, I just want to acknowledge that this is one conversation about a really layered and nuanced topic and multiple systems um, in in place. So one conversation is enough to maybe just spark curiosity. It's not enough to answer all the questions and have all the answers. So I just want to make that really clear. So can you talk a little bit about sort of what, what you saw in the research in stage one of the radicalization pipeline? And sorry, maybe even before we get started, what are folks being radicalized into, in your opinion? Well, it's uh, the radicalization pipeline. It's twofold if we're talking about the end of it, like where the end of the pipeline is to essentially uphold patriarchy. And for Mm -hmm. people who don't understand what that means, there is a subset of billionaires who are white males who are conservative and and they're, they're just focused on male dominance. If you need to learn more about that, I recommend visiting the United Nations website where it affirms what patriarchy is at length because we don't have the time to go over that. Um, But that's a basic understanding. And that subset of of powerful men and billionaires that are looking to maintain power need to have what's called bodyguards of patriarchy. And that means that there's footmen who defend ideologies of patriarchy in order to create inequality, right? Because equality by default will create more competition And by more competition, that means power is divided amongst many instead of a few. Mm. So the the motive behind it is to indoctrinate indoctrinate young men and and teenage boys into misogynistic thinking so that they defend the patriarchy and they end up defending the billionaire class um, at the expense of everybody else. And including themselves. Right, including themselves. And that's Mm. ultimately... Um, the goal and the mission of what patriarchy is to have the radicalization because in order for patriarchy to exist, there has to be violence. There's a marriage between both, uh, both because patriarchy uses violence to enforce consequence, right? And that is um, where we are today in America. Like we have the most mass shootings, we have the most sexual violence, and we have the most sex trafficking. So we are in a place where patriarchy is trying to maintain its power at all costs. And as a result, everyone suffers because you end up creating a system of victims. Mm -hmm. Well, let's start with who gets targeted 
by this radicalization pipeline? And, and how does somebody in this group find themselves there? Okay, so this is what shocks people the most when I bring this up, because it, they're like, it's so easy and it's right in front of me. A Google search <laughs> is the answer. Mm-hmm. What happens is where young men and boys, so generally it's ages uh, 13 through ages 50 are the ones that are targeted via Google targeted ads. Mm-hmm. And what will happen is they will type in something of the nature that will start with, how do I get girls to like me? Or how come women are not attracted to me? And that Google start search, instead of bringing back like psychology today or scholastic articles, the people behind the scenes who are bidding to be seen first on those on those Google searches are what's called the Manosphere uh, community. The Manosphere community is the recruitment funnel to radicalization. It's early phase radicalization. Mm-hmm. And they're targeting male insecurity. So let's define that. What does male insecurity mean in this context? So male insecurity is... is by patriarchy standards, right? Masculinity is is a certain subset to the patriarchy, which says that like to be a man, you can't be a woman. Anything feminine, it mm-hmm. makes you not a man. They they classify masculinity as whatever is cool for the moment that's going to affirm patriarchy because in reality, masculinity is fluid, right? Like by default, it's it's a genetic system, right? Like it's it's biological masculinity in and of itself. But the social construct that we create in society is like, well, you can't wear pink. You can't have your hair long. You can't wear earrings. You can't, you can't wear high heels or you can't wear makeup. But in reality, those are cultural gender binaries mm-hmm. that are not biological. Right. And right. what so what happens is patriarchy will do something. There's a, a, a term that I coined that's called biology, where what they'll do is they'll lie. And they'll take religious dogma that affirms patriarchy and then say, oh, masculinity in and of itself is biological. Mm. And like, but like the masculinity that they're talking about is a gender binary. Right. Because it's beyond the the XY chromosomes. It's right. Like beyond that, you're talking about expression. Human expression is individualistic. Right. Right. So they're, they're taking again, this gender construct and they're, they're saying these prescribed ways of being that somebody at the top of the patriarchy has decided will be, um, they're, they're lying. So that's the biolite, the biolite, say it again. Yeah. Biology. Biology. I love that. So people are being lied to about what is a biological imperative. And instead they're being manipulated into believing these social constructs as biological truths. And so I think herein lies one of the earliest vulnerabilities, and you hit this on the head so well, masculinity is often defined by what femininity isn't. And so without a core identity, so many men who um, find themselves on this path don't know who they are without creating a distance between themselves and anything feminine or, or anything that they've identified to be coded as something that involves women. So I think they're already primed to be looking and yearning for something that gives them a sense of meaning and a sense of power. And that's where I think this, this radicalization pipeline starts. They're looking at the disaffected boys and men. They're looking at men who find themselves without purpose, without goals, without a real sense of self. 
and who feel vulnerable and unwanted in society. And so that makes them incredibly vulnerable, but it also creates this need for these systems to convince them that they're not vulnerable because that is feminine. So they're in this constant state of cognitive dissonance that makes them incredibly vulnerable to being manipulated in this way. That's a hundred percent what's happening because yeah. the vulnerability is lying. The fact that patriarchy is telling them that, you know, if, if they're masculine, if they go to the gym, if they work really hard, if they make money and have a house, they should attract women by default when in reality, when we look at where we are in 2022, with the resources we have to develop emotional intelligence, we see women creating communities and learning from each other to develop skills at a very rapid rate, whether it's listening to podcasts, engaging on Facebook or TikTok. There's a constant community of women who are really learning from each other to build emotional skills and create healthy boundaries. Whereas you see with men, the manosphere, what they'll do is you'll have you know, male uh, psychologists that would be great to talk to these men. But when it comes to Google and it comes to advertising, the manosphere communities, the stage two of the communities are called pickup communities Mm. and they're pickup communities, dating advice. And what they'll do is they're, they're reaching for the immediate need. And then they will outbid doctors on Google searches in order to maintain the number one spot. So like you might see a psychology today article all the way at the bottom or on page two, where like the first set of the pages on Google are all these manosphere um, community pickup communities of like, in order to get women, we have the solution. You know, Mm -hmm. if you want to be more masculine, here's the workout routine and buy this supplement. This will make you, you know, get bigger and more swole and you'll attract women that way. So they're they're, they're reaching right where the insecurity is based on the Google search, and then they're bidding the highest. So then these um, young, you know, teenage boys and men get recruited into pickup communities, or also known as involuntarily celibate communities, incel communities. And that stage two is where uh, the objectification of women begins, mm-hmm. where what they do to meet the need is because they're, they're not doctors, right? They're not psychologists. So what they do is instead of working through the issues and the insecurities, they use a tactic that's called male dominance, male superiority, in which what they will do is they use biology um, and what's called the milaganda, military propaganda, to say men are stronger than women, um, men are more intelligent than women, men are created in the likeness of God while women are property of men. They'll start creating a hierarchy mm-hmm. where men see themselves as deities who are entitled to women and that women need to behave in a, in a certain aspect that the patriarchy has defined and that, you know, that could mean that she has to accept abuse. She has to clean and cook. She has to stay at home and she has to help him pursue his ambitions. So the pickup community starts creating this hierarchy and a mentality for male dominance and male superiority. And that's really where stage two um, really focuses on. Well, what I find so fascinating about this in your article, you refer to stage two as male bonding. And, and I'm so glad that you recognized the this need for intimacy that is being met by the joining of the incel or the pickup artist communities, because 
the, the men who find themselves in this pipeline are really craving connection. They're craving intimacy. And so I think that most of them are typing into their search engine and they're saying like, help me, help me big, big wide web, help me find connection. And instead of getting resources that actually will help them develop, I'm hearing you say there's big money farmed into people in the pickup artist community and incel communities being the first answer that some of these vulnerable men get. And so what can happen, and there are other studies that have talked a lot about this, is the ways in which homosocial bonding, so male-to-male companionship and friendship, happens through the subjugation and degradation of women. So this stage two is where that starts, right? Because unconsciously, these young men are being brought into a community that says, you belong here, you belong with us, see, you belong somewhere, you fit. But in order to do that, you have to go along with putting down women and being dominant to women. And so it's a very insidious um indoctrination into misogyny or an exacerbation of the misogyny that they may have already been raised with. Right. So what then happens is, um, and I'm glad you said this, that homosocial bonding, because a lot of people don't know what that is, but stage two is creating the homosocial bonds and homosocial bonding is the way in which the bromance develops, Mm -hmm. but it's the toxic bromance. It's not like just going out with your friends to hang out. It becomes creating the hierarchy of like, you objectify women of how many women did you sleep with? How many girlfriends have you had? You know, it's, it's the ideology of, you know, men are superior to women and therefore women should be treated as mere objects versus human beings. And that creates homosocial bonding. Once that's solidified, they recruit into communities called men's rights activist groups or Mm -hmm. MRAs. Mm -hmm. And then MRAs are where um, they create political stances that specifically tear down equality, right? They, they, they attack any policies that lead to equality. And they affirm that by saying, well, you know, in the pickup communities, you learn that men are superior and we have to maintain male dominance because women in the feminist movement, they really want female superiority. They're not really fighting for equality. They're fighting for dominance. So we have to maintain our dominant position. And then the, the male's right activist group then attack the feminist movement that that historically has only fought for equality. Only fought for equality, right? It's such a projection to hear MRA groups saying that feminists want superiority because that's never been a part of the, the movement actively. Yeah. Right. That's never, whether it phase um, the wave one through wave four, the current wave, mm-hmm. that's never happened. And even, you know, I wrote the first intersectional legislation in U.S. history and like that legislation set the playing field equally because when you look at statistics of minority classes versus how white white male veterans were treated and service members when they went through sexual violence, all it did was level the playing field from Latin and Caribbean American women experiencing, um, you know, sexual violence and retaliation at a rate of 90% where white, white males only went through that at a rate of 10%. Wow. So like that legislation simply just said, okay, well, this can't happen anymore we're equalizing the playing field, right? It didn't suddenly turn it around that like 90% of white males are going through sexual violence now. You know, if anything, that legislation now would help reduce that number as well. Exactly. So, you know, it, it, it is part of the radicalization pipeline is using biology, right? Using lies in order to, that sound scientific, but for someone who doesn't have an interest in science or isn't educated in science, 
doesn't really understand that that's a lie, right? Because they make it sound, they make it sound, you know, really um, attractive. I I Mm -hmm. listened to some of the work because a lot of those talking points would come at me when I was uh, passing legislation and, you know, advocating and giving speeches publicly. And I would be like, why do they say this? And, you know, where's this coming from? And then I started to listen to who they listened to. Mm-hmm. And the talking points. And um, I don't want to skip over the fourth phase of the manosphere, but when it gets into um when it gets into what's called the international the intellectual dark web, they make it sound so intellectual and sophisticated mm-hmm. that it sounds scientific when it's not. Right. Um, you know, so I can see why it happens. You know, I can see how someone can innocently make a Google search. And next thing you know is like sitting there fighting against what benefits them. And then all of a sudden now hates women. I can see how it happens. Well, it's really convincing. You know, I, I appreciate you saying that because I really don't think that the majority of folks who find themselves on this pipeline sign up to be on this pipeline. But it's very similar to the way that cults operate. There's a strong, charismatic voice at the top of the power chain, and everyone else is sort of taken in by their charm, by their convincingness, by the mechanisms of control that are at play in the way they manipulate messages. And I I find, you know, I've, I've worked with many men who have extracted themselves from this pipeline, and they often have a lot of shame at how they got duped to be down this path. And I really feel for them because it's so hard to believe that anybody could be so easily manipulated, but that's how subtle and convincing and insidious this messaging is. To the untrained eye, it looks like fact and it looks credible. Right. And then also people don't realize the amount of money that's going into this. So it, remember the whole, the whole goal of this is buy is to buy a vote right? Like it's, so there's politics money behind this. And when you, when you know American politics and you understand Citizens United, there are billions of dollars that are going into this recruitment system. And the way that it's being done is over time in the radicalization pipeline to train someone's mind to move from mainstream politics to not trust mainstream politics to then move into the alternative avenue in politics, also known as the Mm alt-right. And then when somebody is in that atmosphere, they're really being radicalized to be bodyguards of patriarchy and then to also vote in favor of affirming patriarchy and then also getting to the point of radicalization to commit acts of violence to affirm patriarchy. So they don't realize that they're being used as a political pawn Mm -hmm. in politics. And the reason why I came to understand that myself was you know, with politics, I first started running for office because I wanted to change laws. And when I saw how much um, the way it would work is if I was not a pawn, I would receive a consequence. And there was safety in fulfilling other people's roles. And because of that, I went into human rights because I was like, I'm not here to be anybody's pawn for politics. And like, I'm not someone who's going to be bought out. I'm here to pursue justice. And, you know, as a U.S. citizen, I have the right to pursue justice, but obviously electoral politics means that I have to sell my soul along the way. And like, I, that's not where I was. So I understand the type of money that goes into buying politicians and buying votes. Mm-hmm. And before I founded my own uh, human rights organization, I had been deeply involved in politics already for about five, five or six years. And I had learned the ins and outs of how the power structures work. 
So the reality is like, it's not that person's fault for getting um, duped into the radicalization pipeline. I do feel like when someone starts to recognize it, they, they, they have a responsibility to then educate themselves and then take the necessary measures, whether it's going to therapy and getting help that they need to um, get back into a healthier line of thinking. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like it could happen to anyone, you know, like how many women have probably Googled online and been like, you know, why did this guy stop talking to me? Like I've done that in my twenties. So, you know, I could see how that could happen to anyone. It's just, that's not the way that the, the left wing is buying votes for women, they're doing it more on an issue-based manner and they're they're not using a radicalization pipeline because they're they're more so fighting for equality. So you know th- there's differences there, but yeah, it makes men and boys vulnerable. And that's why I wrote the article to begin with of like the lost generation of men and boys, because statistically the number of incels is at an all-time high. And in the next five to seven years, that number is expected to double. So it's like the, where we are today is we are, we are at an all time low. And if we don't have this conversation, we're about to move into a worse position. So it's like, we're creating a system and a society where we're, we're creating extremism and we're creating mm-hmm. domestic terrorism. And that's where I was like, I need to start talking about this in a way that mm-hmm. people can understand and also take action. So we've gone through the first three stages of your uh, your framework for this radicalization pipeline. What's stage four? What comes next? Stage four is um, misogyny. Um, that's where a lot of misogyny, well, that's where you build misogynists. And like the most um, notable person that I can, that we can all look at would be Andrew Tate, right? So Andrew Tate's like the most famous misogynist where um, at that level, the, the openness to uh, hatred towards women and also male supremacy, right? Like stage four is there's a marriage between misogyny and male supremacy because misogyny in and of itself, hating women is because there's a sense of inferiority. So the idea in stage four is to convince men that, you know, they work out and they're stronger and women are, are weaker and women need to be subservient and, you know, women who fall out of line, the modern woman is quote unquote, the reason for their woes, the reason for their problems. And they need to look for a trad wife, the type of wife who's going to just say yes all the time and give in where she's going to cook and clean for him. She's not going to express any boundaries. You know, he can go out and he can cheat, but she's going to stay there. He, she, he's um, going to make money. She's going to stay at home and take care of kids. He's going to be able to go and have sex with multiple partners, but she can't. Right. So mm-hmm. That, that area is literally pure hatred for women. And this is where gender-based violence comes from. Because a lot of times people think they're isolated incidences, but when someone uh, becomes a misogynist or what's called a male supremacist, whenever a woman sets a boundary about how she feels or what she needs, she's seen as being out of line mm-hmm. and she's And it seems to be that it's a power struggle and she's asserting dominance. That's how it's looked at versus her expressing an emotional need. And now when she's expressing dominance because she's quote unquote behaving like a man, she needs to be put in her place and she has to experience violence. That's, that's how they're thinking. And that's, that is the root of gender-based violence because what patriarchy is saying to them and what, what stage four is saying to them, those communities are telling them 
that a woman who asserts herself is asserting her dominance and therefore it's a power struggle and you need to use your physical strength against her to eliminate the power struggle at the points that she quote unquote misbehaves, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's what they're doing in the manosphere. And And the reason why I brought up Andrew Tate is like, it wasn't only what he was saying, but there was videos of him literally beating women and then saying like, you're being disobedient. You're, you're defying me. So like, he's the perfect example for what stage four radicalization looks like. And this is where they get men comfortable with committing acts of violence Mm -hmm. and helping them feel entitled to commit acts of violence. And protected. Oh yeah, because exactly. Those communities are reaffirming that behavior and Mm -hmm. telling them like, you know, they, at, at that level, they will say things like kill feminists. Mm. Like they will, they will say things like if she's a feminist and she's asserting herself, you need to beat the feminists out of her. Or if she's, you know, repeatedly asserting any type of fe- feministic ideology is, you know, she needs to be murdered. Like at that level, that's where violence is acceptable and openly spoken about in those communities in stage four radicalization. Yeah, I, I really, from a mental health perspective, and I'm not saying that this is a mental health condition, but from a mental health perspective, what stands out to me is just the the fragility and the inability to mentalize and have any sort of understanding of what the experience of another might be. And so if I'm hearing you right, men who are this far along in this radicalization pipeline really have been conditioned to center themselves and their experience as the top, the most important, and the only one that needs to be listened to. And when I work with folks who have been subjected to this kind of conditioning, it can be a really, really scary place for them to step outside of this belief system because everything that they believe about themselves, their self-worth, their sense of autonomy in the world, their uh, belonging in a group, their ability to attract a mate, everything hinges on this rhetoric being true. And I think that a lot of them know on some level that it's not, but it is it becomes a part of their marching orders. And so to to put it down or to question it would mean likely immediate uh, ostracization from this group. And herein lies a, a loyalty bind for them, right? This is the only place where I've belonged, but I'm not really getting what I want, but I deserve it. And so I'll just, I'll double down and maybe it will become real for me. So yeah, what happens um, in this stage, this is called a mid-level radicalization and it's also known as alt-light. So mm-hmm. this is where they won't express white supremacist ideology at this point, but they will express male superiority. And what happens um, at this point where it's going to start shifting into more violence is the IDW communities, the intellectual dark web communities, this is where they use a ton of phylogy. So in that case, it's like, well, that's obviously phylogy. But what they will do at this stage where they're starting to convert to stage five is they will say that God ordained this, where they'll say, um, you know, God created women to be submissive. God created uh, humans and, and males to be a certain way where males are polygamous. Males, you know, are visual creatures. And we, we know that um, God did this biologically when he created them. And with women, it's like, well, women are naturally monogamous and God created them to be monogamous. We see this in the Bible and we see this in biology. 
But in reality, so it sounds credible, right? To somebody mm-hmm. who doesn't know science. But when you start looking at the research and you start looking at how men's emotions are, how pair bonding goes, and then you you also take human studies and then animal studies, you start seeing that like mating strategies aren't differing per gender, right? They, they differ per species de- depending on the environmental circumstances. Patriarchy is putting money for their voices to really be out there. And mm-hmm. people don't understand that behind the scenes. So they just see this person who's their icon now and whatever they say is fact. Mm-hmm. Which is also part of the patriarchy, right? It's it's intentional that there are more men having these loud conversations about this than there are women. And every once in a while, there will be a token woman who's brought into the conversation to create an air of credibility amongst women in that community. But I mean, I think a lot of women who are are speaking on behalf of this this same movement, um, maybe they know and they don't care, but I think a lot of them don't realize that they're just incredibly um, convenient props. I think it's half and half because like, okay, like Candace Owens, for instance, like I know she knows what she's doing. You know, she grew mm-hmm. up, she, she grew up less than 45 minutes away from where I grew up. So like where I grew up in Westchester was 15 minutes from where, where AOC grew up. And then on the borderline of Connecticut is where, Candace Owens grew up. So when it comes to like the education system and what we were taught in the Northeast, like we learned about equality and also like Candace Owens, like she went through a hate crime from white kids in her school. And like, Mm -hmm. I remember it was all over like the Westchester news and like the NCAACP came out and helped her win a lawsuit. So like, I, I know she understands gender and racial dynamics. I think what happened though with her was that the amount of money that patriarchy gives her to affirm patriarchy for her puts her in a safety net of where now she has wealth and power at the expense of, you know, women and minorities, but she quote unquote feels protected by patriarchy now. And she has power and influence that she would have not had in the left wing of politics. But then there's other people where, um, like I see a lot of, um, like Latin Americans who are right way on, on the alternative, right where I think their upbringings because of double colonization, where you had Spain and then the United States come in and then religion is the focal point of their upbringing. Then I think what happens is they're, they're more easily radicalized by default, but cannot deconstruct the religious patriarchy. And because they don't know how to, how to deconstruct it, they fall into being defenders of patriarchy without realizing it. So I I think there's two subsets of like those who know and those who don't. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a really interesting point. I mean, how how would folks in that second subset even start to deconstruct that? Where do you think they get stumped? So I actually grew up in stage five radicalization. Mm-hmm. And that's, it took me a long time to deconstruct everything that I went through. Because for me, um, the way that it happened was my experience in the Marine Corps was like the final breaking point. But what happened for me growing up is like my dad was highly misogynistic because he grew up in Puerto Rican culture and double colonization, which reaffirmed like male superiority, right? Because Christianity would say that men are deities created in the likeness of God and that women have to be submissive. But growing up, like I noticed my brother would be treated a lot more lax than I would. And they would be like, you need to go clean the bathroom. But my brother would be playing video games. And I'm like, well, why doesn't he have to clean when he's the one who made the mess in the bathroom? Because I cleaned up after myself. 
And then like my dad would be like, well, you have to go clean the bathroom because you're, you're a girl and you're preparing to be a wife. And then I'm like, but I don't even want to be a wife. Like I'm five years old. I want to just play and I clean. This doesn't sound fair to me. So I was always challenging my parents. And then most of the arguments my parents got into was even though my mom was, was someone who affirmed patriarchy, um, she would challenge my dad whenever it came to an argument. My dad would be like, well, I'm the man. And like, you're supposed to listen to me. And then my mom would be like, well, I don't care that you're the man. And then he would be like, but the Bible says this and the pastor said this at church. So why aren't you listening to me? So I would see her try to stand up for herself and assert a boundary And then my dad would be like, but all of this evidence here is saying that you can, and you have to listen to me. And I know that that's what ultimately led to their divorce. Mm -hmm. And then with my mom, um, my mom went to Catholic school. And at the same time, her line of the family, her father's side comes from the military aristocracy of Spain. And they're tied directly to white supremacy. And that's a lot of where my mom's family's wealth has come from. And my, like my mom went to private school, her dad went to private school. He was a chef. Like he, they had a lot of privileges in life and all of that came from money that came from the Spanish aristocracy. Mm. And what I started doing, I took a DNA test. And when I took the DNA test, I started to see who was who. And that's when I connected the dots that uh, my mom's side of the family was, became the governors of Costa Rica and Nicaragua. And then they only went to Puerto Rico when the U.S. government went into Latin America and invaded and they lost their power and fled to Puerto Rico before um, the U.S. seized uh, Puerto Rico. So what I ended up learning throughout that, the process of like things didn't make sense when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And then my mom would hit me really badly anytime like I would question anything that was patriarchal related, like why can't people who are gay love each other? Or why is it that I have to clean and cook and like my brother doesn't? And I would get hit with the bell. So I was experiencing violence and my mom lost custody of me, which is why I entered the Marine Corps. And then when I entered the Marine Corps, I went through insane amounts of violence and I I went through sexual violence. I went through torture. I went through hazing. Um, You know, I had a metal chair thrown at me. Um, I got raped and then I reported it and I got arbitrarily incarcerated. So I remember by the time that I got incarcerated and I was like sitting in a cell and they gave me a Bible to read and I was just like, and I'm reading it. And I was just like, I don't want to read this. I want to go read legal books. Like I'm going to figure out how to get out of here because none of this is fair. The biology turns into God said this, right? So religion is saying, ordaining what's happening. And I think my story is a great example of what stage five looks like. Um, getting into stage six, which is um, white supremacist patriarchy, white supremacist patriarchy at that level now says not only did, you know, God ordain male superiority, but God also ordained white supremacy and that there's a white race that's the most powerful and the white European race is dominant because Christopher Columbus came over and he started the slave trade and colonized and therefore um, the white race is quote unquote superior, right? So that's, It continues by Lyagy and then starts to use history as part of the narrative as to why male dominance and white supremacy both emerge. And that's where we start to see hate crimes against different communities Mm -hmm. um, with white supremacist patriarchy. And the white supremacist patriarchy essentially, you know, looks to, to harm women and minorities. So like the LGBTQIA community is like a huge uh, community that gets attacked by stage six radicals. 
Um, and also like the Jewish community often, you know, anti-Semitism is huge mm-hmm. in stage six radicalization. Stage seven radicalization is a violent extremism. So uh, most people in the United States, when they think of violent extremism, think of the Middle East mm-hmm. and they think of like the Taliban or ISIS. They don't typically understand like mass shootings, right? Like school shootings typically are by people who are radicalized. A lot of mm-hmm. them write uh, white supremacist manifestos and male superiority manifestos. And also like when we look at just mass violence as a whole, we're like even seeing the insurrection that happened on the Capitol, all of that, a lot of those people had ideologies of white supremacy um, and male dominance and felt that, you know, the symbolism on the left is creating too much equality and based on their belief systems, equality is a no-go at all costs. Mm-hmm. So at that point, it be, uh, violent extremism is to send a message to government officials of like, well, the more you fight for equality, the more we're going to commit acts of violence, right? Because we need superiority, but that doesn't work out that way. It's the least equality there is, the more violence there is. Mm-hmm. So, and, and the re- and the inequality is what even gives way to uh, the pipeline to begin with. So equality is one of the key markers to lead to peace, right? It's part of the pathway to peace. Mm-hmm. And when we're on the other side, violent extremism is literally to terrorize everyone in a community in order to put them in fear to get them to bow down to patriarchy, where it's like, if you don't give in to what we're saying and you don't believe what we're saying, then you could be next. And that's really what extremism looks like and what happens with it. So that's stage stage seven, the last stage, domestic terrorism and extremism. Yes. Yeah. That's like the final part of the pipeline. Wow. So when you when you sit back and sort of look at the way that you've organized all of this, I'm so curious about what you would want listeners to take away from this conversation. That we need to change our mindsets, first and foremost, about sex and relationships. Mm-hmm. And like that, that's the hierarchy, I think, that we need to look at first and foremost, because you know, with the rising number of involuntary celibate males ages 18 through uh, 32, right? Like that's expected to to hit upwards of like over 60, 70% in seven years. And, you know, that means that we're going to live in a society that's just riddled by violence. And where we are right now is already like that when there's, when they're 30% are extremists. So it's like, we're, we're heading in a direction that if we don't start rethinking sex education, Mm-hmm. If we don't start rethinking um, both like sex work and um, sex therapy and how we can rethink the entire system of really revolutionizing how we're talking about sex, how we're educating sex and how we're having sex, mm-hmm. then we can prevent this from happening because the United Nations specifically says to prevent radicalization from happening. The, the best area to stop the radicalization pipeline is through investing in prevention. And if we have men and boys that are Googling, how do I get women to like me? You know, why won't women have sex with me? And like, that's the beginning phase. Well, we need to rethink how we're talking to men and boys about sex and relationships. And we need to do so in a way that is fun and exciting, Mm -hmm. you know, a way that that attracts them to want to engage in learning more, a way that makes them feel rewarded and they see results from engaging in a healthier process. So we can 
um, stop the radicalization pipeline where it's starting. Because by the time it gets to domestic terrorism, people's kids are dying. They're going to school and they're getting shot up. And at that Mm -hmm. point, that could have been prevented had we just had better and healthier conversations that helped men to attract mates. Yeah. Well, to, to piggyback on that, I really think that we have to challenge this construct of purity culture, which is so baked into the patriarchy and so many religious um, ideologies. It's designed to keep women from having sex. So, you know, what I think a lot of folks maybe understand, some don't, is the more we emphasize on telling women that they shouldn't be sexual or that they aren't inherently sexual in the way that men are, which is not true at all. Um, But the more we emphasize that narrative, the more the scarcity around sex continues and that continues to foster entitlement and extremism in terms of getting sex. So that's when we start to see things like sexual violence, sexual slavery, um, and the underground trafficking markets become so much more uh, intensified and popularized in these communities because there's this idea that I should have this but it's not available to me. But when we stop with that absolute nonsense that is uh, telling women they're not sexual or that they shouldn't be, um, we really do create a landscape where people have the ability to say yes more enthusiastically when they have the education and the knowledge on how to be sexual in a way that keeps their bodies safe, recognizes their own autonomy and consent, and creates from the start an emphasis on pleasure, equity, and mutuality. And I think if that's the way folks were raised, oh my God, in one generation, maybe two, we would have a very different landscape. Yeah. And I think we have to do that, you know, because I think one of the things that's happening is, you know, Gen Z are, they're the largest group of feminists I've ever seen, you know, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I've, you know, even myself, like being a millennial, I see how they are. And like, they're willing to take a stand of like, if this doesn't change, if healthier relationship standards are not met, then I'm picking political celibacy over having sex. And if you're going to support purity culture, then I'm going to defy purity culture. And like, that's something I've done because, you know, as a human rights leader and even doing consulting, I've consistently used political nudity to call out and challenge purity culture directly because I understand how dangerous it really is to our society, especially in a society where technology is available and right. sexual slavery is evolving through the use of technology. Mm-hmm. So now it's not like you have to take somebody and necessarily commit sexual violence against them. There's a precursor to that that's happening where it's taking nude photos, selling them without consent, making an economy off of someone, and then you know um, exploiting them through technological means. And then that's seen as okay because women should be the source of entitlement versus, well, if we never had these restrictions on purity culture to begin with, these situations would not be happening and there would be no no sexual slavery market to begin with. So I feel that it's really important to challenge the the systems that support purity culture and the systems that are supporting the radicalization pipeline and to have these types of conversations. So last question for you, I I heard you say that people were actively trying to plan your death. And I'm so, I'm so scared, you know, for you to have this conversation. Um, I've also been the recipient of death threats when I start talking about anything related to feminism and I get it. It's, it evokes in many people a terror that they want to extinguish. And sometimes that means they get the idea to eliminate the stimulus. 
But I wonder for, you know, what are your tips for any um, people listening who do want to do more advocacy around this, but they're also scared? How do you, how do you handle being safe? So I've had to do a lot of different aspects. Um, One of the main things is like, you know, if you're going to be in the public eye, for sure, you've got to make sure your address is, is untraceable. And like, depending on the state you're in, there are different ways to do that. Um, you know, for me, like in New York state, based on what happened and that I had police reports for it. And also like when an assassination attempt was planned, my job hired security and like that became documented. So like in the court system, in federal court, it was documented that there was an assassination attempt on my life, that it was planned and it was very well documented. And I, I got ahead of it because it was credible and I was able to protect myself because of that. But one of the things I would say is like your personal information needs to be as hidden as possible as you can, um, you know, with your address and things like that, because people will, they're going to dox, they're going to do whatever they can to deplatform you. They're going to do whatever they can to terrorize you. Um, but also our voices are our weapons and there, there has never been a fight for human rights that has been easy. And, you know, when you think about where we are today as a society, everyone who came before us has faced those risks. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think being silent and allowing the suffering to continue generation after generation is far more problematic than it is to me to stand up to the patriarchy. And, you know, I may be somebody who has abnormal courage, but for me, I see like, even if the event came that like something happened to my life, I know that my voice is going to carry on to touch somebody to inspire them. So it's worth the risk, but also like being, you know, not necessarily having um, your phone number available or providing your phone number for people to get access to it publicly. You know, privacy is is a key point. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the things I did was have a privacy firm. You know, I paid a privacy firm to take all of my private information off of the internet. So anything that has anything that could trace somebody to locate me is something that like I did because I was in the public eye a lot. Um, So that's something I would recommend for someone who's being very vocal and, you know, out there in the public sphere. Also, um, you know, there's for the amount of like tax a target, like how often I was targeted. You know, I definitely gave a lot of that information to the police department. A couple of times I had to go to the FBI Mm-hmm. A couple of people were arrested by the FBI because of that. So like, I'm somebody that like, as soon as I get inkling that there is a risk or an endangerment to my life, it's getting reported somewhere and it's getting documented. Mm-hmm. Um, so and like, yeah, to me that that's for my safety, but it's, mm-hmm. it's what comes with what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So it's like the same way that I'm speaking out about these issues to inform the public. I'm going to do whatever I can to protect myself. And as soon as someone oversteps a line of where, um, it's not a disagreement. It's a threat to my life. Then I'm going to take the necessary steps to make sure it's documented somewhere. Yeah. Great. Thank you again for sharing your experience, your story, and this incredibly insightful organization of how these young vulnerable men are being radicalized and exploited in their own right and how it's damaging them and all the rest of us. Where can people find you if they want to make contact with you in a safe way? So uh, Facebook is really good. I would say probably my business, um, my business, Facebook, TikTok, or um, Instagram, which is Boricua Gringa, which uh, it means Puerto Rican American, but you can find me on there or you can just find me through my name, Janelle Marina Mendez, um, and it will take you to one of my business 
social media sites where you can contact me and message me on any of those platforms. Wonderful. Thank you so much again for this conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I'm really happy that we were able to have such a meaningful conversation. Me too. Me too. I really hope that listeners walk away having learned something new, maybe having challenged a bias of their own, and maybe just maybe uh, opening up the doorway to getting some different knowledge and uh, changing a trajectory in their lives. Because stepping off this pipeline can be really scary. But I'll tell you, the men who I've worked with who have stepped away from this mindset, find the real path toward liberation and connection and power and and a sense of security in themselves and in their community that isn't based on constantly needing to prove themselves in this hierarchical way. And not only is it better for their psyche, it's better for their sex lives. And it's also good for everyone because it's literally coming off of the radicalization pipeline puts us on the pathway to peace. Yeah. And in a, in a world in which we have peace is a world in which we're not having victims. Mm-hmm. So everybody's going to have better sex when we're having consensual sex that we <laughs> generally enjoy with our partners. Absolutely. Yes. Well, thank you again. And thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Modern Intimacy. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Modern Intimacy podcast. On Instagram, follow me at Dr. Kate Balistrieri and at The Modern Intimacy. On TikTok, check me out at Dr. Kate Balistrieri and on Twitter at Kate Balistrieri. Everyone has questions about mental health, sex, and relationships. Send yours to me via DM on Instagram or email them to questions at modernintimacy.com and I'll answer some at the end of each episode. Visit the website modernintimacy.com to schedule a consultation with a member of our team, or to sign up for our newsletter. Let's meet back here next week. New episodes air every Tuesday. Reminder, this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for mental health services. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.